might be, it could be, it is Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I am one of your hosts, James. With me as always, I've got my other host. Diaz, and what a get today. Special guest, please introduce yourself. Can't believe we got this guy. Yeah, I'm the uh, the rotating permanent guest host, Xavier. I'm glad that we're important enough for you to make some time every once in a while. Uh, of course, but only only for you two. No one else. Well, there we go. I mean, hey, don't go guess with anyone else. Because then we won't be able to bring you back. And that would be really unfortunate. I would hate to lose you. But uh, that's that's the rule. Well, hey, Xavier, while you're here to join us, you got any memories for us right now? Got anyone making memories for you? Yeah, you know what? I, I got two little quick hits. I talked about uh, one with the two of you off air, but I feel like the listeners would enjoy this as well. The Lone Star Conference is... A Division II conference based in Texas. There's 18 member schools, but only eight play football. Six Texas schools and two New Mexico schools. But Texas A&M Commerce is leaving to move up to FCS to the Southland Conference. So the Lone Star Conference needed some new football playing schools. Mm-hmm. So where did they look? Oh, you know, maybe somewhere else in Texas or, or Oklahoma uh, I don't know, Louisiana, perhaps, say in the Gulf? I mean, that would make sense if anything about college realignment made any sense whatsoever. The Lone Star Conference decided to raid the Great Northwest Athletic Conference, taking Central Washington, Western Oregon, and Simon Fraser University, the only Canadian university that competes in NCAA Division II sports. Oh. A university from... British Columbia is now in the Lone Star Conference. I'll bet there are some very confused Canucks fans. I know that you were speaking to at least one very confused Canucks fan. That's weird. That's really weird. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. I know this is not how they do it, but I wish it is how they did it. That similar to in baseball, every home team has their own specific field. The Canadian team should play on the larger field with their own rule set. And when they go down south of the border to play an American team, they play by American rules. But when the American team comes up, they play by Canadian rules. I think that would be fantastic. And if they're not doing that, it's truly a missed opportunity, in my opinion. It's It, it would give us the opportunity for the only 1-0 football score that is possible because of the one-point rouge. The rouge from Canadian Football League, a rule that I do not understand entirely well. But I do know it's a way that you can score only one point. It's so funny I don't understand the Rouge either, but I have seen examples of Rouges being scored, and it'll just turn into, like, one team punts it into the other team's end zone, the other team desperately tries to kick it back out. I don't fully understand it, but much like Aussie Rules football, for example. I don't understand Aussie Rules football either. But if I get back from the bar at 3 a.m., I put on Fox Sports, and what do I see? Live Aussie Rules football, and I love it. So the Rouge, Aussie Rules football... All these variations, let's let's make American football a little more exciting. I think it speaks to the universality of competition because we've seen highlights of people just kicking balls out of their end zones over and over again, back and forth in a single plane. It's, it's hysterical. It's great to watch. Good high-level competition wins out at the end of the day. It's always fun to watch regardless of how hard to understand or just outwardly silly the thing is. <laughs> you are good at a thing. I don't care what that thing is. I will watch you do it and be amazed. 
Yeah, but Xavier, I apologize. We have cut you off because you said you had two quick hits, and I would love to hear what your second one is. It's all right. This one is much quicker, and there should be much less discussion. Fire Rod Carey, that is all. Uh, Fire Rod Carey. So for the uninitiated, Rod Carey is regrettably the head coach of the Temple football program. And it's so sad to see that a program that was started to be built up by Al Golden Eventually, we get to Matt Rule, who takes us to even greater heights. Jeff Collins keeps it going along. And in comes Rod Carey, who has created such a toxic culture that I believe we are now up to 17 players in the transfer portal. Is that correct, Xavier? So it's seven, but a bunch transferred last year, too. So I think over the past two years, we're either the top or in the top couple for most players who transferred out. We've also gotten blown out by 40 like six times this year. So... Not good. It's a sad state of affairs, and it's all Rod Carey's fault. He needs to leave because not only is he a bad coach, he's a bad person. So goodbye, Rod Carey. Fuck off. Oh, owls. Within a couple of years, we might not even be the best owls in the conference with Rice and FAU joining. So I don't want to be the third best owls in this conference. Well, thank you very much for keeping us abreast of our all of our owl-based sport uh, updates. Diaz, you got any you got any memories burning a hole in your pocket right now? So memories are made and not by people that are actively playing right now. It was announced today, justifiably so, that Bryce Harper is the 2021 National League MVP, which he foolheartedly deserved after one of the greatest second half seasons that I've ever seen. Absolutely dominant, almost single-handedly lifted the inept. Philadelphia Phillies to the playoffs by himself, which is really crazy to think because we were going head to head with the Braves and then, excuse me, the Atlanta baseball team went and did the thing. Bryce Harper wins the MVP. Zach Wheeler finishes second in NL Cy Young voting. And somehow the Phillies are not in the playoffs. We're just going to become Angels East, which is all the more reason for Mike Trout to come home. And I will admit. If you had to ask me, I probably would have said Juan Soto. I probably would have given Juan Soto like the slightest edge. Bryce Harper, it, like they were the top two. The Washington Nationals have had a weird embarrassment of riches in the past like 10 years. There's so many great players that have come through there. So you, you not just have Harper, you have Soto. Zimmerman was so good for so long. Rendon. They made that Daniel Murphy signing after the Mets World Series run, and it felt like the silliest thing. It felt like, what What are you doing giving him this contract based on that small sample size? And then he lived up to it for like three years. The Adam Eaton trade was good. I, the Nationals are a very well-run organization. It's just a little frustrating to think about that as we, an hour north, struggle. Hey, we're, uh, we're two hours north, and uh, we hate them too, so we have that kinship at least. That's fair. But hey, Bryce Harper, and also shouts to Shohei Otani for maybe the greatest baseball season of all time. Also for a non-playoff contending baseball team. Right, all six MVP finalists did not make it from playoff team. It really is just a testament to the fact that I think above all other sports, baseball is where individual greatness is very appreciated, and we love to see it. But one guy does not make a team in that sport over any other. I also appreciate seeing how I think there's going back to like the Felix Hernandez Cy Young. I think that was one of the big like first moments here where we started to recognize that we were trying to honor individual accomplishments versus necessarily 
who is the best guy on the best team. I think that has been largely good. I think outside of like Rick Porcello, people have pretty much nailed the awards in the last decade or so. Rick Porcello, Cy Young remains an absolute. Yeah, that was a bad it, one. It's that- it's the worst award in easily the last 20 years. What about Bartolo? Bartolo Colon Cy Young is less silly than Rick Porcello's. I'm sorry. Justin Verlander had that thing dead to rights. Didn't Johan Santana have like a war that was twice as high as Sloan with better stats in every single way other than wins? Absolutely. I'm not saying that, that Bartolo Colon deserved that Cy Young, but if we're talking about two people who did not deserve Cy Young awards that they got, Rick Porcello certainly deserved his significantly less. Fair enough. I'll keep it short. I'll go ahead and let you know it's making memories for me. And it's Lamar Jackson's digestive tract. If anything is going to stop Lamar Jackson from winning a Super Bowl in Baltimore, it is going to be some kind of stomach discomfort in the middle of a game. We already have the Cleveland game. He continues to maintain that he was not using the bathroom and, and he is my quarterback, so I must follow him into the dark. But this is like the third time this year, not related to COVID, that he has been out of practice due to sickness. Come on, man. Did you get it? Like, I know it took you a while to get a COVID shot. Could you please also get a flu shot? We're just worried about you. We love you, Lamar. We're just worried about you and worried about your long-term health. As if the Ravens games were not high-flying enough, now I get to also spend the week like, hey, are you going to wake up Sunday puking? I really hope not. I would really prefer for you and also for my enjoyment of this football team uh, if you were not sick on that Sunday morning. I know your pain all too well because in the Jimmy Butler playoff run for the Sixers, as well as various other times throughout Joel Embiid's career, Joel Embiid has had gastroenteritis. I used to not know how to say that word, but I know how to say it now because the amount of times that I've seen Joel Embiid is questionable with gastroenteritis has been far too many for a athlete that has access to the greatest trainers in the world, some of the greatest chefs in the world. It's, it's confounding. It truly is. So I feel your pain. Hopefully it won't be pain for long. Hopefully we'll handle business against the Bears. But hey, that's, those are the memories that Lamar's making for me right now. But we have a more pressing matter at hand. We have some guys to discuss and our category this week, uh, which I selected, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about the guys behind the guys. I wanted to talk about coaches and mine in particular. And I wanted to really hammer home the fact that sports are a zero sum game. You know, only one person succeeds in every single outcome. Anytime there's two people going into something with conflicting desires in sports, you know it's going to get settled. You know one person's going to walk away with what they want. And everyone that's, that's a hero to one fan base is a villain to another. Sometimes someone that's a hero to many people throughout a fan base to one person could still be a villain. I want to talk to you guys about Bob Hill. Bob Hill, this ringing any bells for anyone? No, it's not the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to spoil it for you? Please, I I like a good build. This is good. This is good. Because here's the thing. I selected Bob Hill for a very personal reason, but there's a lot of fun things about Bob Hill before we get to that reason. Bob Hill, he's born November 24th, 1948. We are coming up on his birthday soon. Hey, happy six days in advance birthday, Bob Hill. Uh, He was born in the Columbus, Ohio region. 
Uh, he grows up a very big Phoenix Suns fan as he's getting into basketball. He's got a grandma down in Arizona, so he'd be in Phoenix in the summers. He'd wear his Suns gear in uh, in Ohio. So this was not uh, a LeBron, you know, lifetime Cleveland guy who had to stay in the area. He was just a big hoops fan, though. And he does go to college in the area. He goes to Bowling Green State University. Apparently, he was very good on the freshman team. Never really put it together on the varsity team, but... He was a pretty smart baller, and uh, the coaching staff liked him a lot, so much that as soon as he graduated, he joined as an assistant on that same coaching staff. And Bob Hill found coaching. Bob Hill is not going to do anything but coach basketball for the rest of his fucking life. Nothing will stop Bob Hill coaching basketball. And that is put to the test several times, but Bob Hill is very sincere that he will continue coaching basketball as long as he can. Starts out at Bowling Green for a couple years, till 75, uh, spends then a couple years in nearby Pitt University. Coming into the 1979 season, this is when he's going to get his first big break with the Kansas University Jayhawks. This is when Ted O'Brien is the coach. He spends his first couple years with Ted O'Brien. Pretty bad years with Ted O'Brien. These are the three years at the end of Ted O'Brien's very long tenure with the uh, Jayhawks where he gets fired because they're his three worst seasons ever. And then Larry Brown comes in, and Larry Brown immediately starts to pick things up. Larry Brown is a you know very long-tenured NBA coach uh, with several franchises, and Larry Brown starts to take this guy under his wing, helps develop some of his professional connections. They're winning some Big 12 championships as they get towards 85, and then after the 85 season, he helps get Bob Hill his first NBA job with the New York Knicks. Do you know who the coach was, Xavier, in the 1985-1986 season for the New York Knicks? So that's for Van Gundy. I don't know. So it is Hubie Brown. Hubie oh, Brown. Okay. There you go. Yes, yeah, so Hubie Brown. Brown. Now here's the guy that knows how to coach a basketball game. He takes out the whiteboard and look at this. Put some X's. He puts some O's and he draws the arrow to where the player is going to run. That's what we like to see from a basketball coach. That was my Hubie Brown impression. You're getting at something very central about this is when he joins Hubie Brown's coaching staff. It is towards the end of Hubie Brown's time coaching the New York Knicks. Um, Hubie Brown's had some success, but the second season that he is on Hubie Brown's staff, Bob Hill, uh, Hubie Brown starts the season four and 12 and is fired. And so Bob Hill, for the first time, is made interim head coach. This is something Bob Hill will get very comfortable doing. They go 20 and 46 the rest of the way. It's not a very good season. And at the end of the season, the New York Knicks do not decide to retain Bob Hill as their head coach. Uh, they bring in instead Rick Patino. Yeah, that was another bad. T- that you can Pride just think that all, all, all of Knicks history is littered with very bad coaching decisions. I mean, hey, maybe if they'd kept Bob Hill, things could have been different. But Bob Hill is unfortunately pulled out, goes abroad for a year kind of clear his head uh he goes to play with vitrus nor that's spelled k-n-o-r-r uh it's in bologna italy and uh he wins an italy cup in his one season there goes great ends up getting some more attention from the nba so he comes back and he joins the indiana pacers who have a coach by the name of dick versace at this point all-time great name holy absolutely no it's it's amazing um there's a lot of good names attached to bob hill but here's the thing, Dick Versace, once again, not attached to Bob Hill very long in his second season with the Indiana Pacers. Dick Versace is fired, and Bob Hill 
is maybe interim head coach. Uh, he does lead Indiana to the playoffs that year. Uh, you know, they're, they're 32 and 25 in his 57 games. So they're fine. Over the next two years, they do make the playoffs both times. They go 40 and 42 and 41 and 41. So they are 81 and 83 over two years, and they lose in the first round every single time. And so at the end of this, Indiana's decided, we've had enough of Bob Hill. Sorry, it's been real, but hit the trails. Uh, he, is, he is fired by the Indiana Pacers. Catches on with the Orlando Magic under Brian Hill. No relation, but this is during you know, Jack's second year, uh, Penny Hardaway's first year. This is very big. They get to the playoffs. This is an exciting Orlando Magic team. And they lose in the first round of the playoffs. They are swept by the Indiana Pacers. Uh, <laughs> things aren't great for Bob Hill. Things are very poetically bad for Bob Hill a lot of the time. And after this Orlando season, you know, he does leave right before Orlando makes it to the finals and loses to the Rockets. But that's okay. He's going to have a chance to lose to the Rockets, too, because he is going to get hired by the San Antonio Spurs in 1994 as their head coach. And he is hired by their new general manager, Greg Popovich. So let's take a quick moment to back up on Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich, also from the Midwest. He's from Indiana originally. He plays four years at uh, Air Force, USAF. He is both the captain and the leading scorer his senior year. So he was a baller at the, uh, the Air Force Academy. Do you know what Greg Popovich's bachelor's degree is in? Aerospace it's, engineering. It's Soviet studies. I mean, he's an extremely well-read guy, so that does not surprise me. It was Soviet studies with, like, a good amount of intelligence training. He was considering a career in the CIA. But instead, he decides he wants to get into coaching basketball. Uh, his, his first big thing is getting hired by a D2 California sports program. It's not a school exactly. It is the Pomona Pitzer Athletic organization, which is the athletics program for two liberal arts colleges in D2 in California, Pomona and Pitzer. But yay, D2 hey. sports once again. So this, well, so this is like this is like in international soccer competition. There's Trinidad and Tobago say, hey, let's link up. Let's have one team together. This is the same kind of concept here. Well, Trinidad and Tobago is one country. It, it's two islands, but it is one country. All right, yeah, listen, just... they settled their differences, they, whatever it might be, they got together. You don't need to get into super specifics, but it's two distinct entities that have one team. That's all I'm saying. Well, in this case, yeah, it's two distinct entities that don't have the resources either on their own for their team. So they combine, uh, and they hire Greg Popovich, their coach. He's wildly successful from 1979 to 1988 with them. They do win their first title in 68 years. And so he gets hired by a friend of his, Larry Brown, at uh, Kansas University, who we might have heard of just a moment ago. Larry Brown takes him under his wing in 85-86, literally the year after Bob Hill leaves Kansas University. It is a year where he's not actually hired, I should say. I'm using air quotes there, because Greg Popovich is a volunteer assistant coach that season with Kansas University, just to get the experience under Larry Brown. Good news is that pays off, because very shortly thereafter, Larry Brown is hired by the San Antonio Spurs. So for a little bit, this is while Greg Popovich is an assistant coach with Larry Brown. He's the head assistant coach with the Spurs, along with guys like Alvin Gentry uh, and Greg Popovich's longtime partner, R.C. Buford. Here's the thing, though. Red McCombs, owner of the Spurs after 92, 
fires all of them. He just fires everybody. He's upset with the Spurs. He's upset with the, the performance. He thinks they're squandering David Robinson. So he fires everybody. Popovich has a brief stint in Golden State with uh, Don Nelson after Red McCombs has kind of just talked into the fact that, hey, you, you don't know any fucking basketball, Red McCombs. Maybe we should bring some of those guys back. Comes back to San Antonio as the general manager. It is the offseason for executive Greg Popovich. He hires Bob Hill and he signs Avery Johnson to a very good Spurs team. This is a Spurs team that has David Robinson, Sean Elliott, Vinny Del Negro. Uh, you're getting cameos from Moses Malone and Doc Rivers. Uh, you got Jay Crowder's dad on there, Corey. <laughs> it's a great team. It's a great team. Even after Greg Popovich trades Dennis Rodman because Popovich and Dennis Rodman just don't get along, it's still a great roster. And in the first year that Bob Hill is the coach, 62 wins franchise record he is coach of the month two times and they do make it to the western coast finals where they lose to the rockets who then go on to beat bob hill's former team the orlando magic in the finals but that's a pretty great first year as the head coach uh and the next year slight step back but not much worse they're 59 and 23 in the regular season he's a one-time coach of the month this time and they do lose in the second round to the jazz but the next year is rough because in the offseason, David Robinson starts to have some back issues. Sean Elliott also is quite injured. And so they start the year very poorly as they are waiting for David Robinson to come back from what they think is just this initial, oh, we'll have a minor procedure in the offseason. We'll get him like 17 games in. Well, after 17 games, the Spurs are three and 14. Things aren't going so great. They are in Phoenix at the time. And Bob Hill. This February, he is out one night with Dominique Wilkins, who was signed this offseason to this team to kind of be a, a holdover until David Robinson came back healthy. He's out with Dominique Wilkins talking about how he's going to have to take some some step back in his usage in the team uh, as David Robinson comes back onto the roster. The next day, he goes to meet with Tim Kempton. Tim Kempton was like a, a bench guy who had kind of had the roster spot because David Robinson was injured. So he, he meets with Tim Kempton. Tim Kempton's just been told that he's going to be taken off the roster for the time being. He's going down to the hotel bar to have a drink. And uh, he, he sees his coach, which is him well, because he knows he's going up to, to talk to the general manager, presumably to scout out some stuff for the game. A little bit later, Bob Hill comes to that same hotel bar and joins Tim Kempton for a drink. And at that same time, Greg Popovich is stepping onto the team bus and Greg Popovich is informing the San Antonio Spurs that Bob Hill has been fired as the coach of the San Antonio Spurs and replacing him is Greg Popovich, the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs. It's pretty quiet in that bus. Dominique Wilkins does not believe him initially. Dominique Wilkins cannot fathom this. This was not very popular in San Antonio either. Uh, Part of that is because the rest of the season goes very, very badly. David Robinson does come back in that 18th game. He plays a total of six games before then missing the rest of the season with more back problems. The good news is it does allow the San Antonio Spurs to finish with the second worst record. They do get the number one overall pick. Yeah, we got Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich is now 22 wins away from being the most winning coach of all time. However, that offseason, 92% of people surveyed in the city of San Antonio by the San Antonio Sentinel wanted Greg Popovich fired. They felt that this was the wildest shit that had ever happened in two years. Bob Hill won 121 games his first two years on staff. And then Greg Popovich just really wanted to coach. People have asked Bob Hill about it since then. 
Bob Hill doesn't love talking about it if you ask him about it, but he will in some interviews. And he's like, yeah, you know, if I could give anyone any career advice, don't have the job that your boss wants. Uh, that's, that's the simplest way to put it. He leaves the NBA for a little bit after this, understandably. But Bob Hill's not quite done yet. He does accept a 10-year, $2.5 million contract from Fordham University in the Bronx, try and restore this once-glorious college program. After three years, he's gone 36-78, and 78, including a 2-26 and 26 season in 2003, which was the worst season in franchise history. Uh, so he was let go after three years into that 10-year, $2.5 million contract. Said it wasn't the right job for him at the right time. He just was looking for something to do to try and pick his spirits up. Bob Hill is, is a broken man to some extent right now. And we need to find something for him to do. Well, here's the good news. He's hired as an assistant in the 2005-2006 season. He goes there to join Bob Weiss, who's coaching the Seattle Supersonics. And wouldn't you know it, 30 games into the season... Bob Weiss, with a 13-17 and 17 record, is fired. And they look at their bench and they say, you know what? There's only one choice to be the interim head coach right now. And so for the third time in his career, Bob Hill is made the interim head coach of a team that has fired their head coach halfway through the season. Uh, he does get another shot at that brass ring. He doesn't do great there. The only real player they have at this point is Ray Allen. They are trying to sell this off. This is during the Clay Bennett I'm going to make this franchise unprofitable so that I can justify moving it to Oklahoma City. Bad news, though, is that he is uh, taken out the year before Kevin Durant joins the team. He doesn't even get to have a season coaching Kevin Durant because after the uh, season right before that, after the penultimate season in Seattle, Clay Bennett calls him on his cell phone and fires him. Clay Bennett calls all of the like members of the leadership of the team, the owner, and just fires them over the phone. So That's so terrible. Yeah, here's like Greg Popovich did Bob Hill dirty. It's arguably not the dirtiest that he's been done in the NBA. It's pretty dirty, but that's it's rough that Bob Hill has multiple times that are comparably dirty on that stage. Poor Bob. And this this at first seems like it's gonna be the end of his time in the NBA. It's but like I said, Bob Hill. He's going to coach basketball, goddammit. So in 2011, Nike asked him to come help out with the Taiwanese men's basketball team. And Bob Hill's like, you know what? I got to coach some basketball. Get me there. Kind of wild to now think about Nike like acknowledging the existence of, of Taiwan, given how the NBA generally treats the general nation of China. During the same time, he also goes to the very briefly lived BJ League. You guys are familiar with the BJ League, right? The Basketball Japan League. Oh, no. Oh, you didn't know that it was stylized as lowercase b, lowercase j league? Because let me tell you that now defunct league was absolutely referred to as the BJ League. During this time, he is also helping the Ukrainian men's national basketball team. They failed to get out of the group stage in the 2014 FIBA World Cup. They're in the USA's group. But he's there because, goddammit, Bob Hill is going to coach some fucking basketball. Ukraine was in the... USA's group? They were in the same group of six. They finished fourth. Top three made it. They missed on point differential by four points. That sucks. Uh, Again, you know, Bob Hill. Bob Hill's a close but not quite guy. But we do have a little bit of a denouement to kind of bring it all back to where it began with Bob Hill. Back to the beginning of his passion. Back to Phoenix. On February 1st of 2016, Jeff Hornacek 
who's then coach of the Phoenix Suns, was fired. And do you know who they brought in to be the interim head coach? Bob Hill? No, they brought in Earl Watson. Come on, this isn't mm-hmm. long ago. You should remember this, Xavier. But Earl Watson had played on the Seattle Supersonics for Bob Hill. And Earl Watson thought to himself, hmm, I need to figure out how to become a coach halfway through this season and establish a culture. I do know the guy to call to immediately become my assistant head coach. So he does get a job because a coach gets fired halfway through the season once again. And he does serve out the rest of the 2016 season on Earl Watson's staff. That is his final season in the NBA as a coach. Uh, He does finish above 500 in his career ever so slightly, but very clearly a lot of unfulfilled potential. In fact, the only championship he has is that Italy Cup. The good news is, though, even if Bob Hill himself can't coach anymore, Bob Hill's progeny is going to coach, goddammit, because Bob Hill has three sons. They're all currently coaches. Cameron Hill is the women's basketball coach at Trinity University. Chris Hill is the head coach at Jesuit College Preparatory School of Dallas. And then Casey Hill, you might know as the assistant coach for the Pelicans and formerly head coach of the Santa Cruz Warriors in the G League. One last fun fact that I want to share about Bob Hill. Bob Hill, during pretty much his entire adult life, lives in the city of San Antonio. So after he gets fired and Greg Popovich goes on to become soon to be the winningest NBA head coach of all time and a five-time champion, Bob Hill is living in the city of San Antonio for all of that. And I just think that I love Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich is one of the primary reasons that I have become a basketball fan. Again, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that all of the joy that anyone that I root for has brought me has been at the expense of someone else. Most of the time, that's going to be your opponents. You know, for everyone that thinks of Super Bowl 47 as a glorious Ravens win, there's at least one person out there who thinks of it as a devastating 49ers loss. Hey, you know, important to keep in its perspective. Everyone's human. Do I begrudge Greg Popovich for doing that? Not anymore, but I also uh, wasn't a Spurs fan in 1994. So, or 1997. It's interesting, I think, to consider here in the twilight of his career how it all started. And, and so that is Bob Hill. I'm just imagining Bob Hill as like, you know, the Squidward meme where he's at his window and Sp- SpongeBob and Patrick are just having the time in their lives outside. Oh, that's it. Oh, it's, 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 he looks down there and it's Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich. He literally was fired the season that they did badly enough to draft Tim Duncan. And then later was fired after a team did badly enough to draft Kevin Durant. I want to just say, though, that is an all-time call-your-own-shot move by Greg Popovich. Because, obviously, as the poll bared out at the time in San Antonio, an extremely unpopular move to get rid of a coach that had done so successfully. And then you have the, the, the poor injury luck in the season. What a called shot by Greg Popovich. Because... I would say if that next season they weren't immediately successful, he would have been gone, like, right away. And now here we are some 25 years later, and he's arguably the greatest coach of all time. And it all started for him at Pomona Pitzer College. Was, which... Again, that was the only place he'd ever been a head coach before he made himself head coach of an NBA franchise. A Division yeah. Two joint athletic program of two liberal arts colleges. I looked into it because I had to know how this was a thing. It is seven colleges that are all together, the Claremont Colleges. 
the five under they all are together on the same campus as one university but also as seven the five undergraduate universities have split into two separate athletic programs so there is pomona pitzer who are the sage hens and then there is claremont mud scripts who are the stags or the athenas and i love the idea that a group of colleges that is together one college decided to have two separate athletic programs on the same campus where they play each other despite all being students of the same place and it's fantastic and i love that that's where popovich started out it's essentially the most like codified intramural league ever i absolutely love it you gotta embrace the weird in sports and that's one of the weirdest things i've ever fucking heard well that's my guy who's got a challenger bob hill some early heat coming out of the gate i got somebody oh yeah yeah uh you guys remember Don Zimmer? Don, Don Zimmer. Zimmer. Fuck yes. So Don Zimmer was born January seventeenth, nineteen thirty-one, uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, his parents owned a fruit and vegetable company. Zimmer signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers as an amateur free agent in nineteen forty-nine. He was a, a true baseball lifer. He was involved in baseball for sixty-six years, and he often noted that every paycheck he'd ever gotten was from baseball. That that's commitment there. So, while playing in the minors, just showing his commitment to baseball, in 1951, when he was playing uh, for the Dodgers minor league team in Elmira, New York, he married his high school sweetheart. Her nickname was Soot. Everyone knew her as Soot. They married in a ceremony at home plate under a canopy of crossed bats held by teammates. Even his wedding was a baseball wedding. I always, I always thought the scene from A League of Their Own was just like, they made that up for that movie. But that was a real thing. That's incredible. So Zimmer, the guy who just loved baseball so much he didn't care where he was playing as long as he was as long as he was playing and later coaching, he spent five years in the minors. And during that time, he played winter baseball in Cuba in 1952-53 with Elefantes de Cienfuegos and Tigres de Mariano. His nickname that he was given in uh, Cuba was El Galleguito, the little Galician. Uh, because oh he was <laughs> the lightest skin guy there. <laughs> the next year, in 1953, Zimmer had the first of multiple beanings to the head, uh, where he was hit in the head by a fastball from Jim Kirk. When this happened, he lost consciousness, felt brain clots, and needed multiple brain surgeries. This was in 1953. They didn't know it, much about brains back then. This was Yeah, like... they, they, they kind of drilled just some holes in his head. It was like, okay, so we're going to try this, and then if not, lobotomy? That was probably their thought process. They're not, they, they don't need to try something else before going to that. We know lobotomy works. Look how different you are afterwards. Have you considered a lobotomy? So Zimmer didn't regain consciousness for two weeks. He couldn't walk or talk, and he had lost 50 pounds. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, they later had to, uh implant some metal buttons into his skull where they had drilled all the holes. He was told that his career was finished. That would be that. His, his injuries were so bad, it was one of the reasons why Major League Baseball decided to adopt mandatory batting helmets for everybody. Well, it's like the, the famous phrase with like OSHA is like, codes are written in blood. Thankfully, in Don Zimmer's case, he was unconscious for two weeks and lost 50 pounds and now has metal in his head for his rest of his life but he, he didn't die, so it's not as bad. 
Yeah, but this was only the first time he was hit in the head. So we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to the other ones later. But On Zimmer's concussions to go. So despite the doctor saying he would never play baseball again, and also the fact that, again, he couldn't walk or talk and was unconscious for two weeks, he recovered, made a full recovery, and he made his Major League debut next year in 1954. Uh, next year? Yeah. He's not even out of the sport for a year after that. Yeah, and... His year at the year after that, he actually had a, a really good time. So in winter of 1954, 1955, Zimmer, uh, after he had broken in with the Dodgers, played about 20 games. Uh, during that off that next offseason, he went to Puerto Rico, where he played for the 1954-55 Puerto Rican League champions, Cangrejeros de Santorce. De Santorce, de Santorce. So he played for them in the 1955 Caribbean series where he led them to the to the title. He won MVP of the Caribbean Series with a 400 average and three homers. This this team was Fuck nicknamed yeah. El Squadron del Panico, the Panic Squad, uh, which was later described by Zimmer crazy. as, quote, probably the best Winter League baseball club ever assembled. Everybody should know about Los Cangrejeros de Santorce. Yes, do you want to guess who might have been on this team? I unironically know this roster. I know Clemente was on it. I'm pretty sure Willie Mays was on it. Yes. Um, yeah. This, so this team had two future Hall of Famers in Willie Mays and Roberto Clemente. It had future MLB All-Stars George Crow and Sam Jones and multiple stars from the Negro Leagues who would come down for the winter. This team was insanely loaded. He got a new nickname down in Puerto Rico where he was uh, El Soldadito, Little Soldier. Zimmer gets a lot of nicknames in his career. I love it. That's better than Whitey. I think, like, <laughs> Little Soldier is better than just whitest person. Well, so he comes back to uh, to America to play for the Dodgers in 55, wins the World Series. The only time the Brooklyn Dodgers ever win the World Series in Brooklyn, he's on that team. He plays for the Dodgers a couple more years. During that time, in 1956, he gets beamed again, this time with a fastball from Reds pitcher Hal Jeffcoat. This one breaks his cheekbone and permanently damages his vision. So surely this is the end of his career. I'm the hand him up, Don. So after 56, you know, he's a he's a utility infielder. He's he's not a star player, but he does stick around, wins another World Series with the Dodgers after they moved to LA in 59. And then he gets traded to the Cubs in 1960, where he makes his only all-star team, which was actually two all-star teams, because in 1960 they had two all-star games that year during a short-lived experiment to just have multiple all-star all-star games. Yeah, uh, we talked about that in the in the Harvey Haddock's bit because Smokey Burgess was on both of the all-star teams. So, after after uh, this time this year with the Cubs, he gets drafted by the Mets in the 1961 expansion draft, becoming one of the original original Amazons, one of the original Mets. Uh he bounces around for a couple more years, doesn't do anything, you know, never really gets back to his, his 1960 form, 1961 form. Ends his career with the uh, Hoey Flyers of the Nippon League, which we might now know is the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters. Let's go, fighters. They're the, they made the playoffs, I think, this year. I think the fighters and the Buffalo are the favorites right now. I'm, I'm, go- I'm all Buffalo. I'm all Adam Jones. Let's go, Oryx. So, Zimmer, all he knows is baseball. Even when he has to stop playing, he, he, he wants to stay in the game. 
1967 through 1970. He's just bouncing around the minor leagues, coaching anywhere he can. He coached in uh, San Diego. He coached a bit in Indianapolis. He he was just bouncing around wherever wherever he could go. So in 1971, he gets his first big league job, where he's hired as the third base coach for the Expos. Has a year in Montreal as the third base coach, or he moves back to San Diego to the Padres organization to become the third base coach in 72. Uh, after 11 games that season, Padres manager gets fired. Zimmer gets hired as the interim head coach. The Yo, interim we love an interim head coach today. We, we love the interims. So How about it. Zimmer coached for two seasons. He was 114 and 190. A new owner came in, bought the Padres, let everybody go. Zimmer, out of a job, gets hired to do what he's great at again. He's hired to be the third base coach of the Boston Red Sox. So Keep that windmill going, baby. So Zimmer is third base coach for Boston for two and a half years. One of his most pivotal moments was in game six of the 1975 World Series uh, that we know as the Carlton Fisk home run game. But the Red Sox should have won the game earlier. In the bottom of the ninth, they had the bases loaded with nobody out. Fred Lynn lofted a fly ball to shallow left field, and Denny Doyle was standing on third base. Zimmer, the third base coach, saw that it was too short, and yelled, no, no, no. Doyle thought he heard, go, 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 and runs runs to home, getting gunned out easily, leading to that game going to extra innings. You shouldn't have commands that rhyme by the time you're in the World Series. <laughs> you should have non-rhyming commands. This was a thing in the U.S. Navy in the 1800s. It was starboard and larboard. Then they changed it to starboard and port. Just because they did larboard? It was larboard. East and West. So uh, the, the, the next year, Daryl Johnson gets fired. And once again, Don Zimmer becomes the interim manager and ends up staying on for almost four full seasons as the manager of the Red Sox. This time, his teams were a lot better. He won 90 games uh, in, in three of the seasons. But unfortunately, his time there is best known for uh, blowing a 14-game lead to the Yankees and losing... The one-game playoff on the famous Bucky Dent homer, and Bucky fucking Dent. He also had a lot of issues uh, in well-known feuds with many of the Boston star players, notably starting a rookie with no experience over Boston's star pitcher in an important game because he was really mad at the pit at the pitcher at the time and didn't want and didn't want to let him play. Mismanaging injuries uh, leading to some. Very bad overuse issues for some of Boston's star players. So it's fired in 1980. He moves right on to Texas, where he ends up coaching the Texas Rangers for two years. Nothing happens there. He, and he gets fired. But then Zimmer gets another chance to be manager when he's hired by the Cubs in 1988. Uh, he spends a few years with the Cubs. And in 1989, he actually uh, wins the division title with the Cubs and wins manager of the year. But then he gets fired again two years later. Oh, no, Don. <laughs> we almost had him that time. Zimmer bounces around again, and he goes to the expansion Rockies until in 1995, he was having issues with Rockies manager uh, Don Baylor. And in the middle of a game, and without telling anyone, he just walks away and never comes back. 
Isn't that everybody's dream, though? We've all had that <laughs> one job that we just wanted to walk out one day and never come back and not say anything. And he did it after close to 50 years in baseball, right? And he decided yeah, he's, he's going to walk out. He, he's been in baseball for almost 50 years at this point. But Zimmer doesn't retire. He just doesn't want to be with the Rockies anymore. And this is probably the best decision that he ever made. Right after this, Zimmer takes what is probably his most well-known position and becomes bench coach of the New York Yankees. With the Yankees, Zimmer was a part of four World Series champions. In 1999, it was once again hit in the head by a ball. This time, a lined foul ball off the bat of Chuck Knobloch. This led to the Yankees installing rail fencing in front of the dugouts, which was later adopted by every team. This is the second time that Zimmer getting drilled in the head has led to a health and safety change for all of Major League Baseball. Because he cares about health and safety. He is the baseball Ralph Nader. Unsafe at any speed. This time, Zimmer comes back the next day wearing an army helmet. I love it. That was honestly the best thing to come out of the entire Yankees run with that core four was Don Zimmer wearing a, well, that and what you're about to talk about with 2003, but I'm sorry, I don't want to give anything away. It's all right. That, 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 that's, that's coming in a second. But one thing I wanted to add in real quick, uh, in an interview with Esquire in 2001, Zimmer talked about his bench coach job. I sit next to Tory on the bench. When he plays hit and run that works, I say, nice going, Skipper. If it doesn't work, I go down to the other end of the bench, get a drink, and get out of his way. Fuck yeah, get that paycheck. I love that so much. Easy enough. Now we get to what James had just foreshadowed. 2003, most famous, infamous, however you want to call it, uh, Zimmer moment, 2003 ALCS. Roger Clemens throws a breaking ball, not anywhere close to, to Manny Ramirez. Uh, it's not, not really, it, it's high, but it's not really inside at all. Not even close. If you go watch it, it's clear, and even the announcers notice, take note of it. Manny just wants an excuse to get mad. Manny goes ballistic, and the bench is clear. When this happens, Pedro Martinez is, is, is shown gesturing at someone. And 72-year-old Don Zimmer charges at Pedro Martinez, who sidesteps him, grabs him by the head, and throws him to the ground. Fucking awesome. And it's not awesome because an old man gets thrown to the ground. It's awesome because, like, in every baseball fight, it's so much bullshit. Like, it's such... Most of the fights in baseball are really stupid because no one's about that. What I love is I feel like anytime the bench is cleared, there's at least one person on each team that is about it. And in this case, it was Pedro Martinez. And again, just like Xavier said, fucking 70-year-old Don Zimmer. And you can just immediately tell those two... We are the two that are actually going to fucking do some shit. And Pedro Martinez just throws him to the fucking ground. I love it so much. So Zimmer apologizes for this later on. Very remorseful. But he also said that Pedro was, quote, one of the most unprofessional players he had ever known. So he still hates, he still hated Pedro. He just apologized for charging him. Next year, Zimmer, already in, in his 70s, he wants to take... A job with a little, a little less stress and a little less day-to-day uh, responsibility. So he moves to Tampa, where he becomes a senior advisor for the Tampa Bay Rays. He worked as an advisor for them from 2004 to 2014. 
One of the coolest things that he did was every year he changed his uniform number to reflect the number of years he had been in baseball. So in 2014, he wore the number 66 on his back because he had been in baseball for 66 years. Incredible. I love that. Unfortunately, Zimmer does pass away in June of 2014 due to combination of, of health problems. But the Rays retire his number 66 in 2015. You know, Don Zimmer, true baseball lifer, never really stayed in one place for that long, but was able to have a lot of really great moments in multiple decades. His time in, in, in the Caribbean leagues in the 50s, his all-star, his all-star appearance in the 60s, his 1975 World Series in the 70s, manager of the year in the 80s, Yankees championships in the 90s, and then all his time with the Rays in the 2000s and 2003 ALCS. Now, I just wanted to bring bring some info about this. And I know that there is plenty more on Don Zimmer that I could talk about, but it'd be going on for hours. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Very well done. Don Zimmer does not half-ass anything. He's going to put his <laughs> whole into it no matter what. Yeah, you just got to love... Obviously, so with the 2003 thing, only a baseball lifer would do something like that at the age of 72. You know what I mean? Nobody who is, you know, oh, it's my third year as a coach is going to storm the ace of your rival. It takes a lot of years and a lot of gumption to be able to uh, pull that move off. Well, Diaz, here's what I'm going to say. If your guy doesn't at least twice get promoted to interim head coach or interim head manager because someone got fired, then like, what the fuck are we even doing here? So he's not your friend, pal. He's not your pal, buddy, but he is your guy. Buddy Ryan is my coach for this week. Buddy Ryan will go with some of the more common known facts about buddy off the top. The head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, of course, is how I most know him. Others mainly know him as the defensive coordinator of the 85 Bears, greatest defense in football history, according to many. One of the three best. One of the three best, I think we can easily say. One of the three best, sure. We will say that. And also the father of Rex and Rob Ryan. Rex, of course, former Jets head coach, former... Ravens defensive coordinator, right? That, that was mm-hmm. where Rex was before that? Right, Rex was a I, former Ravens defensive coordinator. Rob Ryan is current Ravens linebacker coach. Love the Ryan family. Xavier, you're going to say something? Yeah, I, I watched um, the entire 2009-2010 playoffs uh, on YouTube earlier today. So I saw a lot of Rex Ryan earlier today and then got really sad when we lost to the Steelers as if I didn't already know that it happened. So, Buddy Ryan... A subject of much debate is his date of birth. February 17th, 1931 is the correct date. However, for many years, people thought he was born February 17th, 1934. This was quite intentional for Buddy Ryan because when Buddy Ryan was looking for coaching jobs initially after his playing career and after his military service, he thought that he would seem more appealing if he seemed younger. This is a move that is commonly associated with Caribbean athletes trying to come to the United States. They want to seem younger than they actually are so that people think that they have more potential. But 
one of the first documented cases of this is actually Buddy Ryan, and it had nothing to do with his playing career. Just had to do with him trying to get a foot in the door as a head coach somewhere. Buddy Ryan played at Oklahoma A&M University, now known as Oklahoma State. Earned four letters as a guard there. Then he served as a sergeant in the United States Army during the Korean War. But as also part of his military service, you cannot keep a football man away from his sport for long. He played on the 4th Army Championship football team when they were based in Japan. Even after his collegiate career, Buddy Ryan still getting involved on the gridiron as a player and winning a championship. But I, I like that all of our guys are very, very single-minded about like, no, 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 I need to do this thing at all times. He's the football guy. We've already yeah. had the basketball guy. We had the baseball guy. And now we're talking about the football guy. So Buddy Ryan, after completing his military service, he's now determined to find a way to still be involved in the game of football. Before he went off for military service, he did coach at the high school level, but he's looking for something a little bit higher now. He wants, wants a greater purpose. So he's looking for college jobs. His initial inclination was to try to coach somewhere in Texas. However, as we all know, football is religion in Texas, and they're not just going to take a shot on any random guy. But one of Buddy Ryan's former coaches, Carl Spiegel, had a connection with the Buffalo Bulls, University of Buffalo, and their head coach at the time, we already mentioned Dick Versace earlier, and I have one that might even beat that name, and it's Dick Offenhammer. That's pretty good. He is the Damn. head coach of the Buffalo Bulls, and they needed a defensive line coach as they were preparing for their first Division I NCAA season. Who do they go to but Buddy Ryan? They take a chance on Buddy, and Buddy does not let them down in the four years that he spends with the Buffalo Bulls, they record 12 shutouts and often rank among the national leaders in most defensive categories. So this is Buddy helping out on the defensive line front. I'm very interested that he goes from, if I'm not mistaken, you said he was a guard and going from offensive line to now this strictly defensive line coordinator. I know he's going to go on to be known for his defensive prowess. It's interesting that he did not come from playing defensive line at all. He's he's playing the opposing mindset that he would then go into defense instead of offenses coaching. I just think that's really cool. I didn't know that. Thank you. Of course. Well, I think there's a lot of interesting potential with something like that because as a guard, you know, you're going to know best what really fucks with you when a defense does it. So brief aside, the Eagles tried that kind of same theory when they promoted Juan Castillo from offensive line coach to defensive coordinator. That was one of Andy Reid's last moves with the Eagles. It's part of the reason why I feel like Andy was ultimately let go. But getting back to Buddy, he was, after proving his prowess with the Buffalo Bulls, the Buffalo Bills of the AFL wanted to offer him the same job. But the University of Buffalo managed to get Buddy to stay it was just a $2,000 raise. $2,000 was enough for Buddy to not go to the AFL at this time, but to remain with the Buffalo Bulls. Not the Bills, the Bulls. One of many instances of people not needing a lot of convincing to not be a part of the Buffalo Bills. Well, I was off to go to Buffalo, and I chose not to go. 
Totally fair. And, you know, eventually that cold does start to wear on good old buddy. So he goes out to Pacific to be a coach there, spends the 67 season with Vanderbilt. And then in 1968, he does finally make the leap to the professional ranks. And Xavier, where did he go to, for his first professional coaching job? Buddy goes to the New York Jets. The New York Jets <clears throat> as their defensive line coach. Immediately, he is announcing his presence and establishing his philosophy as a coach. So one of the main premises Buddy had was that the quarterback is the focal point of the offense, which is not rocket science for any football fan. But Buddy's whole philosophy is that we need to attack that focal point no matter what. So Buddy Ryan's defensive prowess in joining with Walt Michaels, who was the defensive coordinator, they link up, they come up with a defensive game plan, and they hold those Baltimore Colts of the NFL just seven points in Super Bowl three, and they go on to pull off at the time the greatest upset in football history, with the New York Jets beating those Baltimore Colts. Yep. And I just I just want to go over some of the blitz packages Buddy Ryan came up with for the Jets in this game. So the first name generic, I think a missed opportunity. The fifty nine blitz. He also had the Taco Bell Blitz and the Cheeseburger Blitz. These are all unique defensive schemes that Buddy came up with. I just love the dedication to food and in particular fast food. Um, I was going to say the Ryan family, famously very food conscious, health conscious, you know, not someone necessarily. Hey, look, we're all body positive here. This isn't shame them. They are all larger individuals. They are. they, They are portly. Portly, um, perhaps starboardly. Uh, <laughs> no, larboardly. 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 Yeah, larboardly sounds like lard, even, which is you know another uh, word to use for larger individuals. But Buddy, as we have established now, is a very good defensive coach. So after spending quite some time with the Jets, he was their defensive line coach for eight seasons. He moves on to the Minnesota Vikings, where they had an incredible defensive line. You may remember them as the Purple People Eaters, and Buddy Ryan was the mastermind behind this, of course. I did not know that. I did not know he was behind the Purple People Eaters. There's been a great defense in the past 50 years. Odds are Buddy Ryan had something to do with it. The Purple People Eaters, they get to the Super Bowl in, uh, for Super Bowl Eleven, they do lose, unfortunately, because as we all know, the Minnesota Vikings have never won a Super Bowl. But Buddy got them as far as anybody's ever gotten them. And in his time with the Vikings, you know, again, he is the defensive line coach, but everybody in that defensive room greatly respects Buddy. So here he starts working on uh, one of the first nickel schemes that we've ever seen in football, because... In the early days of football, obviously, just pound the rock. That's all anybody really cares about. Buddy thought, hey, maybe if we have another quick guy out there when we're playing a team that passes a lot, maybe it'll help. So Buddy's one of the first people to come up with the nickel scheme. So he's there for two years. And then in a stunning betrayal of the Minnesota Vikings, he moves on to their rival, Chicago Bears, where most people probably know Buddy best for his time with them. 
So in uh, 78, he finally gets his chance as a defensive coordinator. And this is where Buddy finally develops his calling card, the, his greatest contribution to the game of football, some may even say. The 46 defense, which was named after a safety on the Chicago Bears teams. I'll pause to see if either of you can guess his name. Doug Plank. Doug Plank was number 46 for the Bears, and the defense was named for him. But you would think, oh, okay, it was Doug Plank that was so essential to this scheme. It was actually Mike Singletary because a lot of the emphasis of the 46 defense is dependent on that Mike linebacker, the middle linebacker. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that for this great moment in time, this great defensive coordinator and this great linebacker, Mike Singletary, are both on the same team at the same time. And Mike Singletary is really who enables this scheme to take off. So for the first four or five years, Buddy's doing his thing with the defense. His defensive players absolutely love him. Um, and they get through these years, and the head coach, whose name was Neil Armstrong, fun fact, not the astronaut. Um, fantastic. Neil had, you sure Neil it wasn't has, the astronaut? You're 100% <laughs> sure it wasn't the astronaut. Well, so this Neil has two L's in his name. Um, so that's the that's the only distinction that I can really find between the two. But that would also be a very easy pseudonym to take on just uh neil armstrong wait the astronaut uh no 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 no, neil armstrong neil (laughs) armstrong so neil armstrong gets fired and the entire defense comes to bat for buddy to owner george hallis and says listen buddy's our guy buddy needs to be the head coach and george says you know we're gonna go another direction we're gonna go with this guy mike ditka and the defensive player said all right you're going to hire Ditka. You need to at least keep Buddy as the defensive coordinator. And the defensive players went out. So Buddy gets to stay on. And as you can imagine, two large personalities such as Mike Ditka and such as Buddy Ryan, they do often butt heads. In fact, they are often cited to feud openly. But Ditka knows when he has a good guy, leave him to his own devices. So largely... Ditka said, hey, I'm going to run the offense, you run the defense, we don't really need to talk to each other that much. But they did famously talk to each other one time, and they did a lot more than just talk. In that great 85 Bears season, they of course went 18-1. and one. Mm-hmm. The one loss was on Monday Night Football to the Miami Dolphins, who are the only undefeated team in NFL history. That's Dolphins. a pretty great moment. It's a great fun fact, right? Like, the Dolphins realized that this was the last stand that they could have potentially had for their franchise to maintain their record. And sure enough, the Dolphins, were who were not good that year, I don't think they even made the playoffs. They did have their great stand, and they did go on to beat the Bears in that game. But at halftime, it was 31-10. And the people are none too happy in the locker room. 31-10, this would indicate that the defense is not having their best game. Mike Ditka has some words for Buddy Ryan. Buddy Ryan has some words for Mike Ditka. This leads to the team needing to separate them from each other. The two coaches. It wasn't players that were fighting in the locker room. It was the two coaches. So they get separated. Um, They go on to lose the game 38-24. It's their only loss of the season. They go on to, of course, win that Super Bowl that year. 
dominant fashion, 46-10. And, of course, when you win the Super Bowl, the head coach gets carried off. So Mike Dick is being carried off. But the defensive players are so loyal to Buddy Ryan that they do not join in carrying Dick off the field. In fact, they go to Buddy and say, hey, why don't you get up on our shoulders? So Mike Dick has been paraded around the stadium, and right behind them is the defense holding up Buddy Ryan. First time that two coaches were carried off the field at the end of the Super Bowl. And there may be other times I personally haven't found any. So I'm not going to say definitively that it is the only time that it happens, but it is definitively the first time that it happens. So Buddy gets carried off the field, and sure enough, this is the last thing that he does with the Chicago Bears because the next season gets hired as the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Buddy Ryan, for those who are uninitiated in Philadelphia, Buddy Ryan, I would say, is without question the most beloved coach in Eagles history. Andy Reid is clearly more successful. Doug Peterson won the first Super Bowl. But if you were to go into any random bar in South Philly right now, there's a bunch of, say, 40, 50-year-old gentlemen sitting around having a pint. And he said, who's your favorite coach in Eagles history? I 100% guarantee you that they're all going to say Buddy Ryan. Okay. big reason for that is that in Philadelphia, we do hate the Dallas Cowboys. They are our biggest rival. Buddy Ryan, in his five seasons as an Eagles head coach, goes 8-2 against the Cowboys. These are some good Cowboys teams, of course. Goes 8-2 against the Cowboys, and not only does he go 8-2 against the Cowboys, he makes it personal. First off, the 87 season, you may remember, there was a player strike, and Dallas Cowboys had several people that crossed that line. Mm -hmm. And the Cowboys whooped up on the Eagles pretty good in their first meeting that season. But... The player strike gets resolved, and the next time that the Eagles and Cowboys play, the Eagles are at full strength. The Eagles win this game pretty decisively. They're up late, and they could have just need the ball out. But they score another touchdown. They didn't have to, but Buddy Ryan wanted to stick it to him because he felt that it was unbecoming of Tom Landry to run up the score against them when they had their full strength team and the Eagles were playing replacement guys. So Buddy wanted to send a message um, as you can imagine, there's quite some controversy about this. But he doesn't give a good goddamn. Two years later, Tom Landry is no longer the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. It's now Jimmy Johnson. And on Thanksgiving Day of 1989, this is not confirmed, but it basically is. We all know what was going down. Buddy Ryan placed a bounty on two players on the Cowboys. Now, we've already established that Buddy believes the quarterback to be the focal point of the offense. So naturally, Troy Aikman is one of these guys. However, the other one is the place kicker, Luis Zendejas. Ooh, much easier target. Now, you might wonder, why do you have beef with the kicker? The kicker just goes out there and does his thing. But no, Luis Zendejas was the Eagles kicker before this and sucked. Missed a lot of big kicks. <laughs> because Luis Sendejas had lost the Eagles so many games, he said, fuck this guy. I need him to be injured too. So, so messed up. It's, it's messed up, but listen, the one thing you can always say about the Ryans is that they are authentically themselves. And Buddy wanted to take out his pettiness on the former place kicker. And, uh, of course, the Eagles go on to win that game. And this game is now affectionately known in Philadelphia as the Bounty Bowl. Ask anybody in Philadelphia, what's the Bounty Bowl? You're going to know exactly what you're talking about. They're going to talk about the time that 
Troy Aikman and Luis Zendejas had targets on their backs. The press conference afterwards is great about this because, you know, Jimmy Johnson naturally is very heated and says something to the effect of, you know, I wanted to go talk to that man about, about it after the game, but his fat behind couldn't get out of there quicker. And then they ask, and then they ask Buddy Ryan about it afterwards. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I take offense to that. I've been losing weight lately. I've been on a nice diet. I don't think my behind's so fat anymore. So Buddy espousing his weight loss in the post-game press conference, very tongue-in-cheek, of course, not wanting to acknowledge the real reason of Jimmy Johnson's complaint. But it's stuff like that that really will just endear you to Philadelphia, sticking it to America's team, whether it was right or wrong, really inconsequential. What matters is that it was petty and that it was funny and that it was done against people that we hate. That's really the important thing there. Buddy does go 43, 35, and 1 in his five seasons as the Eagles head coach, but he is ultimately let go, unfortunately. But this doesn't mean that his coaching career is done. He goes on to be the defensive coordinator for the Houston Oilers. In his first season at 93, they go on an 11-game winning streak to close out the season. But Buddy Ryan, as we all know, is a petty individual. So on the last regular season game of the year, which they won, I do need to add that. They're playing against the New York Jets, but gets into a sideline altercation with the offensive coordinator, Kevin Gilbride, who would later go on (laughs) to be the Giants head coach. But back in 1993-94, Gilbride is just the offensive coordinator for the Oilers. Gilbride was the originator of the run-and-shoot offense, but Buddy Ryan was not a fan of this. He obviously, as a defensive coach, would rather the offense establish the run, give his defense more time to rest on the sideline. So Buddy called this the chuck-and-duck offense. Not the run-and-shoot, but the chuck-and-duck. At the end of the first half, Oilers can simply just run the ball and take it into halftime, but they call a pass play. Snaps fumbled, and Buddy Ryan starts yelling at Kevin Gilbride. Gilbride then starts walking back towards Buddy, and when they get to about arm's length, they're still just yelling. Buddy tries to hit Gilbride with a sucker punch. Does not connect. They get separated by other players, and they asked Buddy about it a few days afterwards. And mind you, this is as they're getting ready for a playoff game. You know, what do you think about Kevin Gilbride, blah, blah, blah. And Buddy says, quote, Kevin Gilbride will be selling insurance in two years. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So they play the Kansas City Chiefs in the divisional round two weeks later, home game at the Astrodome. And Keith Cash scores the first touchdown of the game for the Chiefs. He fires the ball at a picture of Buddy Ryan that was hanging over the end zone. He explained that he held no grudge. I saw it as I was crossing the goal line. It was just impulse. I let it fly. Buddy and uh, Keith Cash have no history together. But I do think it is noteworthy that the quarterback that threw this touchdown pass to Keith Cash was Joe Montana. This is when Joe Montana was with the Kansas City Chiefs. After his 93 season, his one season as a defensive coordinator for the Houston Oilers, he does leave, not because of any issues with Kevin Gilbride or anybody else in the Houston organization, but because the Arizona Cardinals have offered him the head coaching job. So, of course, Buddy jumps on it. So after his one season as a defensive coordinator, he does go to the Arizona Cardinals. And upon arriving in Phoenix, Buddy declared at his opening press conference, 
you've got a winner in town. And unfortunately, that's the most significant thing that there is to be said about his tenure with the Cardinals. Because eight and eight his first year, and they go four and twelve his second season. He's fired after two years. But the twelve and twenty there, while when combined with the forty-three, thirty-five, and one with the Philadelphia Eagles, does leave Buddy Ryan with a career head coaching record of 55, 55, and one. A perfectly, perfectly balanced. Jeff Fisher is Mr. Just Under 500. So, but Buddy Ryan wait, is Mr. that means 500. his win-loss record is 55.5 and 55.5. Yes, if we're to divide, divide the tie up in the halves, yes. But that, you know, that just about does it for Buddy's coaching career. He does not take another job in football after that. But his legacy continues to live on through his sons, of course, Rex and Rob. Rex now mainly known as a commentator. Uh, Rob still kicking as the Rob's going to ring this year. Rob's going to get a ring this year. He's going to get a ring this year as long as the Ravens go all the way. Yeah. Um, And just to cliff notes it, unfortunately, but he did pass June 28th, 2016 on his ranch in Shelbyville, Kentucky. Um, after lengthy battles with various things, uh, he had battled cancer, a major stroke later on in life, a whole bunch of things. To turn back to the positive of his life, Buddy Ryan, one of the all-time great characters in football history, he fathered two sons who go on to become quite the characters of their own. And Look, we don't we don't have the butt fumble if we don't have Buddy Ryan. That's how far the ripple effects extend. There is no butt fumble without Buddy Ryan. There is no 46 defense without Buddy Ryan. There is no defensive coordinator swinging on both the head coach of one team that he coached on and the offensive coordinator of another. There's nobody who would have done this except for Mr. Buddy Ryan. So salute to one of the most beloved figures in Eagles history, one of the greatest defensive minds to ever come across this game, inventor of the 46 defense and the nickel defense. Modern football would not be what it is today without him. So thank you, Buddy Ryan. Well, one last thing that I should say about Buddy Ryan, because I would be remiss if I did not. Uh, he does share the same birthday with my lovely fiance. So, hey, hon, I love you. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, now that we have our three... Three nominees for consideration. It is time for us to discuss uh, induction of the Hall of Guy. Uh, I mean, if we wanted to be really bleak, I could say mine is the one that's still alive. So, so there is that. That doesn't also, matter. I... <laughs> Isn't Walt no, ha- no. Didn't Walt Hazard also die? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, no, this is a bullshit thing. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, if we're going by who's alive, yeah, it's me. I I did Fox not know. Done the full context of how much of a baseball lifer Don Zimmer was. That was a delight yeah. to learn. I, I, my natural inclination is to say that Don has to be our guy this week. Here, yeah, here's what I'll say. I, I love Buddy Ryan. I do feel like Buddy Ryan strays into... He, he almost exits guy territory. I think it's hard for a coach to fully exit guy territory because they're still just the fucking guys on the sideline. But like he, he almost kind of clears that. To me, it is between, in this case, it is between Don Zimmer and Bob Hill for my consideration. Don Zimmer being on that Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente team, that's a big feather in his cap, man. That is a grande feather in his cap. Love that. Yeah, Don Zimmer had an insanely interesting life that I was, even I was not aware of. As someone who grew up with those Yankees teams, 
I mean, I had no idea about all of the things he did before then, which turns out was 50 years worth of stuff. Yeah. But also, shout out to Buddy Ryan, because New York New York Jets Super Bowl three ring that James bought me is still yeah. one of my favorite things ever, and Buddy Ryan is also helpful, responsible for that. So I do want to give that quick shout out, even if we do go with Don Zimmer. I think we got to go. I, I can't go Buddy. And there's something about if I vote for Bob Hill, it's almost a condemnation of Greg Popovich by, by centering <laughs> Bob Hill as a protagonist. I, I sort of villainize my beloved basketball grandpa. I do love do Bob Hill. Can't do that. And Hey, again, everyone's the protagonist of their own story. You know, buddy Ryan, probably a villain to many Dallas Cowboys fans. And that's, that's just how it is sometimes, but you know what? Don Zimmer, with so many different teams, with so many different accomplishments, I feel like while plenty of people probably hated him at one time or another, but I think everyone also at one time or another had a, had a love for him. So, you know, I, I will go ahead and also cast my vote for Don Zimmer. And with that, Don Zimmer, posthumously, once again, welcome to the Hall of Guy. And let us state as well that this podcast will retire the number 66. So Mary Lemieux. If you had any hopes of ever getting on this podcast, you can go fuck right off because well, here's that the number thing. is retired. Here's the thing. Like, let's pretend we kept doing this for years and years. Yasiel Puig being eliminated would be tough. Oof. Puig, Puig's guy credentials are uh, much, much higher than uh, than Lemieux's because Lemieux is obviously super As Mario Lemieux is Mario Lemieux. Yeah, Yasiel Puig maybe could have been Yasiel Puig. I mean, hey, that's that's all we got for this week. I will, uh, on the way out, I'll say that uh, SB Nation, as I've mentioned before, has the that great hist- uh, Atlanta Falcons documentary. They do also have a really good video on that incredibly petty play between the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles when they do go for that touchdown. It's a great breakdown. Uh, everything that SB Nation does is great. So highly recommend if you're listening to this and you enjoyed that, go check it out. And you can also check out our Twitter. That is at RememberGuysPod. You can also email us at rememberingguys at gmail.com. Those are all of our electronic communication channels. And if Adam Jones is listening, you can come on the pod. Please message us. We're we are, anytime, Adam. We're firmly rooting for the Oryx Buffalo in the NPB playoffs. Uh, hey, also shout outs to the KT Wiz for their first ever championship in the Korean Baseball League yesterday. It was their second ever playoff appearance. They they came in second last year. They won this year. Good for the KT Wiz. Thank you all once again for coming to join us. Uh, this has been Remember That Guy. I am, as always, one of your hosts, James. I am the permanent rotating guest host, sometimes special guest, sometimes regular guest, Xavier. And I am Diaz. And as J. Robert Oppenheimer once said, I am become Guy, the destroyer of leagues. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>